0: Welcome to Truth to Power on Forward Radio. This is Hart Hagen, and we're going to talk with Martina Cunicky. Martina is with Neighborhood Planning and Preservation, affectionately known as NPP. And our usual co host, Justin Mogg, couldn't join us, and he regrets that because he uh, referred to Martina as a longtime warrior in this city. And I have had the pleasure of getting to know Martina. Uh, on the phone and in person, and she's a wealth of knowledge about what's really going on in our community. Uh, Martina, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Hart. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you. So let's start by talking about this uh, Southern Indiana power plant. And we're also going to talk about the sports complex, uh, the methane plant that came and went, the food port. We'll see how much of this we can get to. might talk about a a proposed development around Floyd's Fork. And um, uh, so, but Southern Indiana power plant, this is on Spectrum News. Southern Indiana Power Plant, once named Nation's Dirtiest, shuts down. So I'm going to read a little bit of this, and then we'll comment on it. It's from June 8th. Uh, At Louisville's Shawnee Park, the 129-year-old green space on the city's western edge, two grayish smokestacks stretch high above the expansive green canopy. Down below on the Indiana side of the Ohio River sits Duke Energy's Gallagher Station, a coal-fired power plant that has spewed emissions into a borderless sky for more than half a century. That um, says here, what you need to know, the Gallagher Station power plant in New Albany was retired in June 1. Uh, The plant sits across the Ohio River from Shawnee Park and because of the west to east prevailing winds, that's why it, was, it has been problematic for the West End. Environmental activists in West Louisville said the plant has contributed to pollution and poor health outcomes in the area. Duke Energy, now Duke Energy is one of the biggest energy companies in the world. Duke Energy, which runs the plant, was fined in 2009 for Clean Air Act violations at the site. Now, continuing to read the article. Uh, So uh, this was the closing of the plant. This was a really big win for us, says Arnita Gadsden. uh, Gadson, a Louisville environmental activist who has fought pollution and polluters for decades. Though the plant has operated at reduced capacity in recent years, Gadsden said its decommission and eventual demolition is a welcome development after decades of polluting Louisville's predominantly black West End. She says, I don't think people, even some people in West Louisville realize the impact of that plant, said Gadsden, the executive director of the West Jefferson County Community Task Force and the environmental justice director, for the Louisville in AACP. So now one of the things, let me scan down in the article a little bit. um, It says something I can't quite find, but it it says that um, certain amounts of money were awarded to um, certain organizations. And it's like, okay, we're gonna give money to these organizations, but how does that help people so you know we have a bit of skepticism as to you know what is there to celebrate here are they really making reparations or making amends to the health problems that have been caused if there are clean air act violations you know do you are are, are, shouldn't you compensate the people who have health problems because of that and so anyway we just want to read between the lines on this story so martina what, what what do you think about this whole thing
1: well, if I recall the article made reference to, it seemed to me that the article made reference to organizations in Southern Indiana, mm-hmm. primarily right. that, it, that had been awarded the fund. You know, when I, when, when I read the article, it struck me as an example of what we are challenged with as a public. There are all these uh, grandiose announcements about great progress being made but then, when you look into it more deeply, it seems more like a, a marketing ploy or something to create the illusion of a victory when there's really no victory. Right. Um, the communities that have suffered from the uh, exhaust or whatever from those, uh, from the operations there, probably most of them don't even know that this has happened. I thought that this plant had wound down operations to a large degree long before now. So it just seemed like another hyped up article to make it seem like folks who've been at the game for a long time, the Air Pollution Control Board, uh, really, in my view, has been very disappointing in terms of stride and advocates, advocacy for the public. We get a lot of talk from, from them, but still the conditions, Uh, in Louisville are not, um, are not the best. Uh, We have pollution, uh, polluted air alert days. We have many, many concerns that have never been addressed. They talk and talk and talk, but nothing ever really changes. And then they take the closing of this plant as being a large, much larger thing than it really is in terms of impact.
0: Right. So let's talk about a, a little bit about the sports complex that's going up. Um, wh- what can you tell us uh, about that? I know I'm generally of the opinion that it, it seems to be, the, it, it, you know, like, like, how big is it? And who is? Uh, how was how was the decision made? to create a sports complex, is the community benefiting from it or is it more just PR that benefits a few politicians and that kind of thing?
1: Well, you know, the, pa- the folks behind that project, uh, the Urban League, um, the mayor's office have been very supportive of that project. They like to project uh, a storyline Uh, that suggests that this came from the the community, that the community came together in these very um, um, big meetings, uh, big turnout by the community, it's it's suggested and that the community had a choice about what was going to go on there. Um, I attended one of the early meetings at the Urban League regarding what to do with that property Folks have probably forgotten that this was the property that was, it was public property at one, uh, probably still is public property, uh, that the mayor was going to uh, facilitate the food port and the people that brought the idea of methane plants in West Louisville neighborhoods, Uh, they had control over that property. And so of course that all blew up because of public protest and, and other things that came to light including the mayor preparing to give, I forget what the amount of money was but there was a large amount of money that uh, the powers that be had forgotten and then they found it and it was going to be put into the pockets of the folks that were going to do the food port That wanted to bring methane plants, uh, a methane plant at that, at that location. So that being said, when that fell through, the same old players regrouped and said, "Okay, well, we need to uh, set up another bogus process, public process, and entertain uh, ideas about what is to happen at that space." And I think very few people are going to say that it was a typical. Um, it was typical of the entities involved. So unfortunately, the Urban League does not live up to uh, what it proposes to be or what it claims it is. And historically, what it was more of an advocate for the black community as opposed to a broker for ideas that are coming from outside the community. This was not something West Louisville stood up and said, oh, we really need to have this sports complex that's gonna consume you know, a lot of space in West Louisville where West Louisville like other parts of the community needs truly affordable housing for all income levels, not just for folks that are economically uh, challenged uh, we need retail, we need the same things that people in other areas of the community have nearby. We have to get in the car, get on the bus, do the best we can. Um, what's the little billions, and I'm one of them, still have to leave the community to get much of what we need. Right. And so why, oh, why is the sports complex such a pressing thing? Right. So for them to say it came from the community, it was a community process, I was part of that process at the very, very beginning. And I have to tell you that uh, it was clearly something that was, uh, did not come from the community. And um, there were other ideas of the proposals that at least involved folks from the community that just didn't get any consideration whatsoever. And of course, now they're being sued by Coach Mo, I believe, because they apparently, you know, lifted some of his ideas. It's it's a very very um, crooked way of doing things, but this is typical. This is typical of the pu- public processes that the the city endorses, and then they have brokers like the Urban League that help it, advance those agendas.
0: How did that unfold? Uh, you say that it wasn't a thing, it wasn't a decision making process that came from the community. So, how did it actually happen?
1: Well, my personal experience was when I went to that one meeting, and after that one meeting, I did not return uh, because it was business as usual. Uh, at that meeting, Miss Reynolds came and sat with a group of us, and um, they they had uh, breakout tables like that. I mean, this is the formula. They have food to kind of cajole people. So they had a big meal there. Uh, And then they have, you know, sort of a rah-rah session with speeches about, oh, this is so exciting. We're going to, the public is going to determine what's going to happen here. And then you're sent out to breakout groups and to discuss what your ideas are. And um, at our, at this particular breakout group that I was in, Sadiqa Reynolds, the president of the Urban League or executive director, came over and sat with us. And the first thing out of her mouth was about the sports complex. What do you think about that? And we said, no, we don't think that's good. And then, of course, she gets up and reports for our group. And of course, that is like top on her list in terms of the, reporting from our group, the sports complex was a possibility. So this so what is very she typical reported thing.
0: from your group was different from what your group said. So well, she, spoke she, she
1: excluded everything that we said, but that was top on the list when she reported out, implying that this had come, you know, from the group with a fairly positive reaction from the group. And it was not. And I've confronted her since then on that you know, of course there's no recording of the group and there's no way to, you know, to um, prove whether her version or my version (coughs) was correct. But this is typical of these so-called public processes that uh, when you go into these breakout groups, the powers that be always make sure that at least one, if not more, of them are in these groups, and they sort of channel the discussion in the direction uh, that they feel is appropriate, not in the direction uh, that the community feels is appropriate. And they may pick up buzzwords from people in the group that they can use later, but you know, have no has no meaning other than. They've learned the buzzwords, they have no idea what those buzzwords mean and they have no commitment whatsoever um, to the buzzwords like sustainability, uh, tree canopy, affordable housing. Uh, They love to use a compassion. Um, The list is endless, they love to use these words but they don't. Their actions belied their commitment to In, them.
0: inclusion, equity. Right. Uh, oh that yeah, kind those, of thing. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole family of buzzwords that go along with uh, environmental stuff.
1: Yeah. You know.
0: Um. So that that the ground that the sports complex is on has a history, and you've mentioned a methane plant and a food port uh, that go along with that. Can you tell? Give a little bit of background on those things
1: you know, initially when I heard food port, I like many people in the community thought, well, this will be, you know, good. It'll be like a hay market or, you know, some pl- uh, place where folks can go and get fresh fruits and vegetables. But really it was far from that. And um, I won't go into the details of what it was supposed to be, because I don't, you know, it's been a while since I dealt with that. But I was at numerous meetings where they made it clear that it was not going to be that kind of space. It was not going to be a public market type of place. Um, These folks that were uh, doing the food port decided that producing methane on the site would be a way to I guess recoup their cost, or you know, I really don't know what they were thinking. The fact is, is if that if that um, methane plant had been built, and the one in the California area, they were proposing two. They were proposing two uh, plants. Uh, one to benefit Heaven Hill over in the California area, because currently Heaven Hill, the byproduct of their processing or their uh, their process, uh, is sludge that they put into into the sewer. And so they were thinking, wouldn't it be better environmentally to take that uh, material and turn it into methane gas? Um, and at the food port, they were talking about uh, doing something similar over there, but what they were silent about was how they were going to get sufficient material to justify having a methane facility, methane producing facility uh, in the Russell area because uh, they weren't going to be producing food on that site to that magnitude. And so that meant it, that they were probably going to be shipping in uh, waste from other places to do that kind of processing. The thing that was so disturbing about that among other things is that this would have set an international precedent of having methane gas plants or biodigesters digesters this close, that close to homes and schools right. and churches and so And what the community was told by this mayor and others is, oh, you just need to be educated. You just don't understand. Very condescending.
0: Like we're gonna educate you. Mm -hmm. There needs to be education going on here.
1: Yeah. And just total disregard for uh, how threatened people felt. Uh, Total disregard. here's yet another project that is not serving the needs of the community. You know, this community has been virtually gutted by predatory uh, land use practices. Um, There's a lot of things that's helped destroy West Louisville. The implication is that, oh, West Louisville has failed in some way. No one talks (laughs) about after West Louisville for cheap uh, property. For uh, predatory use, like um, the deluge of transitional homes, halfway houses, dollar stores. Dollar stores, yeah. Yeah, these are all um, emblematic of predatory commerce. People are making money from this and going someplace else and, um, you know, being comfortable in their wealth. So,
0: let me, let me uh, take a stab at like some of the thinking that goes into to a, a methane plant, like your typical urban, upper middle class uh, environmentalist, when they hear methane plant, what are they thinking? Well, the background on that is that when organic material decomposes, if it decomposes with oxygen, then Fine. If it, but if it's if it's in piles, if it decomposes without oxygen, then it turns into methane. So methane is a greenhouse gas. It's rather problematic, although I think that the the way we think about methane is 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 messed up because a whole lot more comes from just the you know leaks in fracking, leaks in oil wells, fossil fuels, that kind of thing. But you know organic. Waste has to be disposed of somehow. So, how are you going to do it? So, there are subsidies for anaerobic digesters, meaning something that's going to take organic material, deprive it of oxygen, so that it produces methane. So, all that sounds good in the mind of somebody who knows just enough to be dangerous <laughs> about environmental issues. And you know, what you don't consider is how, mu- how much resources does it take to make the methane digesters? How much resources does it take to transport the organic material to the methane digesters? Where's this me- uh, organic material coming from to begin with? You know what activity is behind this uh, organic material? And then who profits from doing, a business activity that generates this organic waste who profits from taking the organic waste and turning it into methane so it all sounds good but it if you look if you look behind the scenes it's like this is just like lipstick on a pig you know so well, and you know and, and you also mentioned the fact that the, you know, on a worldwide basis, uh, they ha- there has not been a methane plant of this magnitude so close to where people live.
1: Yeah, I was amused a couple of weeks ago. I was watching a, a uh, documentary on uh, PBS that highlighted the queen and uh, one of the castles or whatever. And they followed Prince Philip around in one of these episodes. And at one point he mentions that they had installed a methane, a biodigester on the property. And apparently it was his idea and uh, it exploded. And so they had to get rid of it. Right. Hello, and oh it's methane. Uh, yeah. And my cons- my regret regarding our battle over the methane, is, is that we couldn't have a reasonable conversation about mm-hmm. the disposal of waste. Now, I don't know that much about methane production other than what I learned, you know, enough to make me know that we did not want them in neighborhoods. But I do think that there is a problem with the amount of waste that we produce and how we dispose of it. Yeah. So I can't say that I'm absolutely opposed to methane production But I can say that until we get better leaders, we cannot have reasonable discussions about what to do to reduce our waste, what to do to appropriately dispose of our waste, and then how the public can benefit from the way in which we dispose of our waste. It's my understanding that we are always producing methane in this community out of the landfill and other places. And yet we are—we've sold that off uh, to entities, out-of-state entities. So the local community, at least on the face of things, we are not benefiting from that. Uh, from that arrangement, but yet that's an arrangement that's being made with public resources, so yeah. to speak.
0: Well, the the organic waste that we're talking about uh, is it's not inherently bad, but the scale of it, it, it's too concentrated. There's too much of it in one place. If you had, uh, you, all the organic waste we're talking about is potentially compost or mulch or something. Uh, there, there's a, an ecological function to decomposing things. There's whole groups of organisms from microorganisms to insects to vultures that specialize in decomposing things. And so in nature, this wouldn't be a problem. And, w- and we need farms, for example, that are ecological. We need farms in which the waste is dealt with on site. Uh, and but you, you have these industrial processes where, you know, they ship in corn from who knows where uh, and they make it into waste. They turn it into bourbon in this case. They make profits off of the bourbon selling it on a worldwide market. They ship it a long way away. There's just, there's nothing ecological about that. And, and by definition, that means there's lots of hidden costs so we're just to, to to take all that and to you know make methane digesters at public expense. You're just subsidized, and, and you know the people of this community don't get any of the profits from any of these. Act- they don't get profits from making the bourbon. They don't get profits from uh, dealing with the waste, and um, so.
1: Well, in the case of the methane, too, so many people criticized us on so many levels you know this is progress uh you don't ever want any kind of progress why are you fighting progress uh why are you fighting jobs jobs jobs? (laughs) but when we looked into what it took to run a biodigester the staffing was like minimal i mean it was not hundreds of jobs or even 20 jobs. And so, and then that, the you know, handful of jobs that would have resulted would not have gone to the people in the community. And you find that with a lot of these industrial neighbors that are being very cavalier about the uh, quality of life in these neighborhoods and the impact of their industry on the health Quality of life, peace of mind of the people in the neighborhoods. Um, it's just.
0: <laughs> well, let, I let, don't know. Let me name a couple of concepts. It, well, one thing is we need to move from an economy of production to an economy of care. When you talk about people saying you should want progress, look at all the jobs this is going to bring. It doesn't bring that many jobs, but it's, it's like the only option on the table. And it's thought to be success and it's thought to be progress when we produce a lot of bourbon, which in turn produces a lot of waste, but it's an economy of production. We need an economy of care where the biggest priority is human flourishing. The biggest priority is like on a per capita basis, irrespective of how much money you make, are we helping you prosper? And this methane digester and the bourbon industry, it it has nothing to do with the prosperity of regular people. That's not the, that's not, it's it's like trickle down. It's, um, you know. Well,
1: it we go back to the concept of magical thinking, Mm -hmm. so trickle down, progress, progress, tear down, build new, um, yada, 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 that is what we are taught uh, is going to be a benefit to everyone, but when you look at reality, as you say, it benefits uh, just a few, and how long are we going to be able to ignore the myth mythology that represents, then we wonder why someone's running up and down the street shooting or pulling an AKA out of his or her car, or we wonder what's going on. When people are not able to make a living, when you say uh, we need to turn to a model of care, when you have decades in which folks are struggling to get through school struggling to get a a decent paying job in a market where you're going to be lucky to have a bunch of minimum wage jobs, struggling to find a place that they can afford without working two or three jobs. And then COVID comes and the whole bottom falls out. And now we're talking, you know, happy days are here again, yada, yada, yada. Not realizing or not recognizing how many people are suffering profoundly because of this magical thinking that the way we've done things in the past is okay. And the more we build, the more we produce, uh, the better it is for everyone. Whereas it's really what we're seeing, the opposite is true. The more we build, the more we produce, fewer and fewer people are benefiting. And they're suffering, and that only has very unpleasant outcomes if you continue to ignore that. And we're seeing it, we're living with it.
0: Right. So sometimes I'm, I, it's easy to go to the national level and say, if they would just change this or this or this at the national level, then things would be a lot better. Obviously, the national level, federal government has the most power and the most money, but it's also the hardest to influence. So, and locally, we're at least potentially more of a. I mean, nationally, we're a small fish in a big pond. Locally, where there's a potential for us to be a big fish in, in a little pond. So, what are the kinds of things that could be done locally to help people? Um, you know, to to alleviate some of the suffering.
1: I think people really need, and I think people are starting to do this actually, uh, really need to pay attention to what these policy makers, the difference or the disparity between what they say and what they actually do. And, but fundamental, In all this, the first thing is that we, the people, need to remember that they work for us. They actually do work for us. They treat us like peasants, but and they have forgotten who they work for. And unfortunately, we have too. We, we've also forgotten. And we treat them as if they are minor gods. And really, they're just lucky people who got into the political machinery They got enough money, that in itself, that money is able to get a lot of these folks elected. That should give us pause. So first of all, remember who they work for and remember to watch their deeds, not what they say. I thought the vote on the police budget yesterday was very interesting. Apparently only one council person voted against it. I'm not sure who that was, But we need to find out who that person was and what the reasoning was behind that. Um, we, We need to stop being sold a bill of goods. So we're going to say the same people that allowed our police to become a militarized force in our community, most of them, not everybody was on Metro Council, but a lot of those Metro Council members were there when you know, horrendous things have happened long before Breonna Taylor was murdered. And so now we have essentially the same Metro Council, the same mayor that got us into a big mess, saying here, we want an even bigger budget. And we're essentially going to spend it in the same ways or similar ways as we've done in the past. We're not going to solve our crime problems, the issues we have with the police just by doling out more money and acting in the same corrupt ways. Um, so as a public, we need to pay attention to, hey, aren't these the same people that came up with the slogan 10 years ago about public safety? Are these the same people that uh, said silent as other people were murdered by LMPD or harassed by LMPD? We really need to stop taking their uh, slogans and new programs and all the things they put out there to uh, reimagine. That's what the mayor said. We we're, this gives us money to reimagine our police department. That is such a crock. Uh, what would you like to mi- see
0: happen to the police department?
1: Well. We need a cultural shift in the police department. And so that's not gonna come from having a civilian review board, whatever they're calling themselves, that's been handpicked by the mayor and the Metro Council that got us to this place. They are part of the problem. So we need a genuine civilian oversight board, not one that has been picked by you know the powers that be. I would like to see our police force uh, go back to the tradition of peace officers. Yeah. I would like to see our police force live in the community mm. that they are serving. Uh, most of our officers do not live in Jefferson County. They're from someplace else. So they literally are coming into Louisville or into the metro area as sort of a occupying force. I mean, they they have that. Um, I do agree that we don't have enough police. And that is a lingering problem left over from uh, merger, really. we I'm told we lost quite a few officers when the two departments, are uh, when the departments merged. So I do think we need more officers. I do not think the solution is, oh, the shortage of officers, well, we'll just allow more overtime. Haven't we been down that path before? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a, a thing to have folks overwork themselves. Uh, you send folks who are overworked. What, what, what issue is the, uh,
0: yeah, the police are, uh, asked to handle things that they are not trained for. You know, need to take, you know, some portion of their duties and give it to social workers. You know, they're not qualified to handle mental health problems. Plus, we need to take some No, of and I think and this budget. Go ahead.
1: I think some of the new budget is to have a social worker go out on police calls. Well, and really, as a society, we have got to come to grips with the fact that these problems did not just spring up yesterday. So we have a lot of problems now that are facing our community and the country nationwide that is a direct result of letting people come out of our school system poorly educated, of allowing our society evolve into one where, you know, you're going to be lucky if you get a minimum wage job, two or three jobs. The more you press people into these untenable living conditions where you're going to be freaked out about making a living, getting your kids uh, safely. E- evictions. I mean, yeah, evictions. Um so having a social worker travel around with a police officer is just not really the solution. Yeah. You
0: know, also, we're criminalizing homelessness. We're criminalizing poverty. If you don't have a home, then the police go run you out of wherever you are. And uh, you know, I've, I think it's been shown that it's cheaper to give people homes than to deal with the consequences of homelessness.
1: You know, if we spend as much energy trying to deal with folks that need a place to live, need some food to eat, need decent schools to go to, as we spend on building a huge warehouse that no one asked for out in Wolfkin Branch, or I'm going to drag JCPS into this. If we spent more attention to proper staffing in the schools, not running off the good staff you have, Right. uh, But instead, our solution is always build, build. Let's build a brand new state-of-the-art school. But then what is that going to do to to mitigate the fact that Teachers aren't social workers. Um, You know, the JCPS thing is a discussion in and of itself. And, um, but once again, it's always this magical thinking. You just glaze over uh, the real problems with a lot of uh, slogans, new buildings, new budgets. New, 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 but essentially we're doing the same thing over and over again. We're tearing down our society uh, behind these shiny facades. Right, well, let me
0: bring back, uh, circle back around to a topic you brought up, which is awareness. You know, if people were only aware of what's really going on then it would be a different community. And you would think that news like the paper the TV news, you would think that the news, you would think that their job is to inform us, but Noam Chomsky teaches us, if nobody else did, Noam Chomsky teaches us that you know, news is a business. As long as news is commercial and is for-profit, it's a business and it's going to represent the interests of the powerful, it's gonna represent the interests of powerful sponsors. It's gonna represent the interests of the owners of the news and uh so we and you know back in 1996 bill clinton consolidated the communications act of 1996 said we can consolidate all these things most of the commercial news including the local news is owned by four mega corporations so we're not getting any sort of news that that tells us enough truth to challenge power. So we, we, we need, and the, you and I have talked about this. This is my personal passion and personal goal and mission is to create uh, a, a, a source of local news that, um, that actually tells people what's going on and makes people aware of what's going on so that we can organize and make a difference and we can know what options are available to us, that kind of thing.
1: Well, two things. Um, The transition of any society has always been uh, facilitated by a free press or a press that takes it upon itself to tell the truth. So Thomas Paine's uh, pamphlet back, and I forget what the name of the thing Common was. Common sense. Common sense. It's always been that way. And so to look at the mainstream media for truth or for reliable reporting or complete reporting, they leave out a lot and they- That's what implement. they don't tell you. It's what they don't tell you is essential. And uh, we're not being uh, well served by that. Now, there are some glimmers of hope. And one is a ruling that apparently was recently made. I just got a whiff of this from uh, one of the alternative media outlets that I followed. There was a ruling regarding a case involving Rachel Maddow. And maybe you're right with this. And the judge, well, let's back up. A similar ruling was made in a case uh, involving Tucker Carlson some time ago, uh, in which the judge essentially said, folks, this is not real news. (laughs) news, And so, you know, you can't go any further with, you know, whatever. And so, and that was reported at the Wazoo by the so-called mainstream media that's on the more liberal side and i put that in quotes yeah and then apparently just recently there was a similar ruling regarding rachel maddow folks she's not really reporting the news and the judge also went on to say and most of the public knows that now see i disagree with the judge I think most of the public, I know a lot of people that just think Rachel Maddow is like cutting edge journalism.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And uh, (laughs) so, I mean, have you heard about that ruling? Yes, I have. It's, um, so in one regard, there's a glimmer of of hope that the judicial system is looking at both the right and left examples of... What we call journalism to me it's so far from journalism yeah what we're supposed to on Fox MSNBC there'll be things that are like glimmers of hope little things that kind of leak out but for the most part uh, they're propaganda machines
0: So let me give our audience a little bit of background on that so you know uh, uh, Rachel Maddow was sued for libel which is a form of defamation that's when you you can sue somebody for defamation if they say something about you that is untrue so so there's but if it's opinion you can have all the opinion you want or if it's not supposed to be even if it's if it's fictitious or satirical or something that's not thought to be you know it's not it's not an assertion of fact then uh, you, you can get away with that too well the you know you would think that Rachel Maddow is asserting facts. Uh, and and the, 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 there's this new right-wing network, OAN, I believe. It's like Fox News, you know that, that kind of thing. And she said that they're being paid by Russia. I, I believe that was the background. And, uh, and they said, look, you can't prove that it's false. you owe owe us money for having damaged our reputation. And the judge says, look, nobody really thinks that this is fact. Nobody thinks Rachel Maddow is reporting facts. So that's how, so I I was writing a little bit about this today and it's like, on the one hand, I'm glad the judiciary is acknowledging that this is entertainment, not uh, news reporting. On the other hand, you know, that means that they can act like news, they can say whatever they want, and nobody can do anything about it. And then I said, well, on the other hand, maybe we shouldn't be depending on the legal system to have a good solution to this deluge of false information. And we've been told about Russiagate is the biggest uh, nonsense. Sense yeah. conspiracy that has ever occurred, and otherwise intelligent people are believing this stuff, like some collusion between Trump and Putin, and and it's the new McCarthyism. And anybody that criticizes, especially the Democratic Party, they say, "Oh, you're just you're in bed with the Russians," like whoever that is, you know. So anyway,
1: yeah. What's funny about that is that the Russians have been used as the boogeyman for like a century, it's just, it's just incredible. And, and, you know, even if the Russians were something of of a threat, the extent to which this country has uh, controlled other countries, overthrown other governments uh, elsewhere, it's just really, uh, but once again, this is an example of magical thinking, really. It's an example of it's just easier to believe these things than to face the realities of American life. It's easier. I, I know people that I very much like and respect, but they think Rachel Maddow hangs the moon. They right. really do. And so like you when and I have- She's
0: really just a, a talent. She's a really talented broadcaster. Who is really good at making her case? She's really charismatic. But yeah. then you have
1: when you look at what she's actually saying, it is like very, very dangerous stuff, these types of things that she's saying. And the other, really, about her, she's really, really well paid. Yeah. And that's what we have to recognize as a society, that these people that are brainwashing us on in the media are paid handsomely for doing so.
0: She's paid like $30,000 a day, you know, several million dollars a year, has like an $80 million apartment in Manhattan. And she's speaking for the Democratic Party, which is supposed to be the party of the people traditionally. And what do you think, what are the odds that she can't really identify with the struggles of anybody
1: No, I mean, she may say that she does. A lot of folks that have ascended to that sort of economic, you know, that type of wealth, they may actually think they remember how it was or relate to what it's like uh, not to be filthy rich, but they don't really. And um, yeah, she's, she's something... But once again, it was remarkable for the judge to make those statements in this case, and then also in the case of uh, Tucker Carlson. So, now has that been covered in the mainstream media that admission by the judge or the judge's ruling in that case? I don't know.
0: I can't imagine. I I would think that, yeah, yeah, I, I just don't know. I know where I got it and I don't, I just don't consume mainstream media.
1: Um, I try to watch it, but it's very, it's very painful really to watch mm -hmm. it. It's a disgrace.
0: Right. So what would it take Martina to, I mean, we're doing it here, but what would it take to, to scale up a, um, a news source that, really tells the truth about what's going on locally. It's something that's, you know, captivating enough uh, in order for people to want to watch it. And, you know, would that be valuable? And how would you grow an audience? What resources do we already have in our community that could be brought to bear? Uh, What, if anything, could local government do or should we not even ask them to do anything for us?
1: I don't think it should be government subsidized in any way because our government is corrupt. Yeah. And so, and our government is very facile, are, they're very uh, talented and as to how to co-opt, they're very much yeah. in co-opting, Right. changing the narrative to their advantage. It does have to be independent press, I believe. I see some glimmers uh, with WDRB. Sometimes I think they're doing some really good investigative work. Uh, But I I really think there is a need for independent media in this community. Uh, Along the lines of, uh, I don't know how many people followed. It was one of my favorite uh, independent broadcasts, The Rising. And the people that were I'm not going to be able to, Sagar, I can't remember. Sagar and
0: Jetty and Crystal Ball.
1: Yeah, Crystal Ball. They have broken off on their own now. And so they're doing their own thing. Uh, Joe Rogan, is it Joe Rogan? Who many people don't like because of some of his views. But I like him because he's sort of out of the box and he's all over the place really. And there are times when I really agree with him. There are times when I don't agree with him. but these are the kind of sources that have covered stories mainstream media just would not. Right. Touch. So right. I would like something like that locally to occur. Sure. Uh, they're doing a good job at the national level and it looks like they're doing a good job financially, that they're able to make it, that there are enough people to support them, that they could, uh, cause things were getting dicey for them, uh, Uh, on the platforms or wherever they were. And they said, you know, we're out of here. If we can't maintain the integrity of our content, we're not gonna be bullied, we're out of here. So I think something like that locally needs to happen. But why is there a need for that? For independent press? Right. There's a need because unfortunately Uh, press can be bought or press can be controlled. And as you described earlier, we're at a point now nationally where all the media is owned by a handful of people and they are corporate type of people. You know, uh, media, not media, journalism is not their first line of business. It's a device that they picked up uh, to use to advance their corporate agendas, uh, their their vision of what america needs to look like and so as long as you have that kind of uh, dynamic then you're going to get journalism or news coverage it's not really coverage it's entertainment news it's propaganda it serves many functions it serves to incite people to suppress information um to advance ideas that, you know, may not necessarily be good for the public, but we're gonna be told that they're good for the public. Mainstream media serves a purpose. It's a device and the public deserves more. The public deserves to know the real deal and what it has to work with and what it's lost. What what types of, a
0: couple of questions. We got about five minutes left. Uh, What types of people might be interested might be the most easily engaged uh, in that type of news and uh, what's in it for the average person. uh, If if we could, you know, get something going in terms of a really meaningful uh, substantial source of local news what's in it for for the people of Louisville.
1: I think Almost everyone you encounter that I encounter, many people say, I don't even watch the news, it's ridiculous. I don't believe anything they say. So the the faith or confidence in mainstream media is at an all-time low. And yet people feel uneasy and worried about day-to-day life. They want the facts. They want to know what is really going on. And yet they leave mainstream media frustrated. So I think what could be gained is that the public will have a source that they can go to to get the rest of the story, get some of the backstory, get some of the facts or something much closer to the truth than what they're being uh, fed uh, on mainstream media. And a better informed um, public is the way to a true democracy? We're not really a democracy. We're a republic with democratic processes, but our democratic processes are so off the charts corrupt that we're you know we're not in the ballpark of any of those political systems. Um, yeah, that the public Robespierre. Well, and I'm not going to be able to quote him exactly. The French revolutionary said, uh, you know, if you want a democracy, if you want a better style of government or the way not to get that is to suppress the public by keeping them ignorant. Mm. Um, that's a very inelegant way of what he said, very eloquent, eloquently. Right. And that has always been the chief device um, always to make sure that the public is ignorant. Make sure that the public uh, doesn't know who the players are. Make sure that the public is afraid. Right. And you can control them for many, many years. You can steal from them for many, many years. You can hurt them in innumerable ways for decades uh, before they realize what has happened.
0: But well, people are busy living their lives and, uh, you know, the powers that be, you know, consciously or unconsciously, that I mean, sometimes deliberately and sometimes just by default, uh, they keep us, you know, tired, poor, desperate, without resources. That's the reason unions are weak. That's the reason, you know, if people had a minimum wage, there would be a much, uh, you know, that people would have the power to say, no, I don't want. Uh, this, this job because I have a, a, an ability to get a better job. And, um, you know, they, they want us to not have the power to enact Medicare for All because there are companies that make a profit uh, off of not having Medicare for All, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare companies. Uh, there are companies that make profit off of the war machine. And, you know, they've got a good racket going on And as long as they've got control, they don't have to pay any attention to us.
1: Yeah, yeah. They don't have to pay any attention to us. They're living very comfortable lives. They're not trying to figure out how to pay for a car or buy groceries or make sure your kids can get through college. They don't have to worry about those things. We have to worry. And so that culture of care that you talked about, that's where we need to be uh, headed. And we need to divorce ourselves of the notion that just because someone has been lucky enough to make billions of dollars, lucky enough to get elected to office, uh, these are not people that were deigned important by some, you know, godlike figure. They they were just lucky. And they don't deserve to be treated any better than the rest of us. We deserve not to have to worry each and every day about all these things we worry about. Life should not be about these kind right. of bad
0: Yeah, we, we have to end it up there. I'm just going to... Um... Uh, end by saying, you know, we need an economy of care, and we need an, a, a politics that's based on human flourishing as the number one priority, instead of uh, you know this stuff that we have now that's supposed to lead to that, but it really doesn't. Uh, Martina Kaneky, thank you so much for joining me. Martina Kaneky of NPP Neighborhood Plan Planning and Preservation. Uh, you're a real uh, uh, blessing to our community, and hopefully, we can come back and, and talk with you again soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you.